podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Just about recovered from a, a not particularly memorable trip to Luton. Yes, so you did make the trip to Kenilworth Road. The mm. game was forgettable. Mm. What was your uh, experience of the stadium, the atmosphere, etc., etc.? Uh, not great. Um I'll be honest, the, the, the charm, let's say, of, you know, the, the new ground and arriving and all the things that we've been shown many, many times over the the way in and the smallness of it and all that, it lasted about three minutes. Um, I'll obviously say stuff which is to do with the entire population of the town or anything, but the atmosphere before and uh, during the game, while noisy and obviously electric and for the home fans getting themselves, you know, riled up and that, uh, it, I found it really, really negative, to be honest. It was non-stop, um, quite derogatory stuff about Liverpool, Liverpool fans. Uh, there was very, very little in the way of, you know, positive towards their own team other than the Luton chant uh, for most of the first half. Um, I heard plenty of things, let's say, in the concourse, which should not be heard anywhere. Uh, at the end of the match, at the end of the press conferences, all the rest of it, just as I was going to leave, I quickly nipped into the into the toilets on my way out, the fans ones, they'd all been smashed up, roof panels out and everything. This was in the, the Luton end, uh, I should add, uh, Luton fans end. Um, yeah, it just, it wasn't a great and memorable trip overall, to be perfectly honest, that, match aside even. Yeah, I mean, I, I did say to you, uh, all fair before, thing that can be a bit moody around there. I didn't expect it to be as bad as as you're saying and and certain other people who were at the game have said um and obviously you were there in a working capacity so you weren't in the Liverpool end so you were more able to hear what the the Luton fans um had to say for themselves during the game Hmm. and really and truly a quite a shameful lot by the sounds of things and obviously on the broadcast we could hear the chants about Hillsborough we could hear the chants about, you know, feed the Scousers and stuff. And by the sounds of things, worse was said among the fans wandering about on the concourse. Now, their statement is one of the more pathetic things I've ever heard, I've ever read. I thought it, it was be- a shocker. It, 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 it begins like some sort of fanzine introduction to a match report about mm. the electric atmosphere and how they almost won the game. Like, what on earth are we doing here? And then the idea that it was a small number of people and then that their investigation had immediately shown them that most people 
were just joining in but didn't know what was what they were saying. Utter, utter nonsense. Like it's a really shameful day for that football club. And you know, when you add in what you've just mentioned about the toilets, like they've gone to their own stadium and they've had their best result of the season, arguably their best result in 30-odd years, other than winning the playoff final. And they've decided, you know what we'll do to celebrate? We'll absolutely wreck the gaff and we'll break up the toilets and we'll cost our own club a whole heap of money to replace them. It was just quite a surreal um part of the day to be perfectly honest quite quite a lot of that time in the stadium um i mean like start to finish that luton statement is an abomination to be perfectly honest like first of, first of all saying that a small number of supporters the only way you can consider that small is because it's a small ground and therefore if it was a bigger stand it would have been more people because it was most of one stand away to our left and obviously they are smaller stands than most other Premier League clubs. Other than that, I don't see any way to suggest that it was small. And saying that, you know, people didn't know what it was about is just a flat out lie. It, I mean, what are we yeah. expected to believe here? These are the people who turned up for a, a football match for the first time and it just so happened to be against Liverpool. Absolute nonsense. And, Absolute and they've, nonsense. they've never been on social media and they, they don't know the connotations of, of that That's- statement. It's an absolute joke. Um, it, it, it was it was pathetic, to be perfectly honest, um, in my opinion. It was seeking to, I think, deflect a lot of attention from that with all that, you know, uh, talk about the atmosphere, talk about the match, pull it come close to pulling off one of the results of the season. It's got nothing to do with anything. There's nothing to do with what this statement, it shouldn't even be in there, no. trying to make a positive out of what is not just a negative, but one of the you know, worst things that the Premier League have said you can do this season. That's that's the own uh, organisation and not just the Premier League, but when Super League, the FA, all the governing bodies involved, the EFL. Um, so I, I think that there's a long, long way to go for that club to really realise what they partook in there. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. And with a bit of luck, there's a long way down to the Championship ahead of them. Um, moving on, because they're not worth any more of our time. Uh, We had Champions League action last night. We have more games tonight. Let's take a look at the groups that were involved last night and then circle back to the groups that played tonight. So in Group E, uh, Brendan Rodgers suffered yet another European embarrassment, beaten 6-0 by Atletico Madrid. Uh, two for Griezmann, two for Morata, one for Lino, and one for Saul. Atleti top Group E with eight points. Second is Lazio, who beat Feyenoord 1-0 last night. Feyenoord are third, and Celtic are bottom, and for all intents and purposes, they are out. But this is a really good three-way race, Carl, between Atleti, Lazio, and Feyenoord. Only two points separating the three teams. Yeah, really close. Um, obviously, Celtic needed a result, at least to be competitive for, for third. But I think they probably also needed either Lazio or Feyenoord to be better than the other one in both games, rather than getting one win for one, one win for the other, obviously. Um, so, yeah, Celtic discounted now as, a, as a, even a runner for, for dropping down to the Europa League, I think. 
Um, the other three, I honestly find it quite tough to call whether Lazio or Feyenoord go through because obviously Feyenoord not a club I watch week to week, but Lazio and Serie A, obviously we, I do anyway, I get much more exposure to, I get to see quite often and they had a really poor start, but they've been much better since. Mm. So whether they're just peaking at the right time to make themselves sneak through, it's basically, I think, going to come down to which of those two clubs can get a result off Atletico. Um, which maybe you would say is marginally favouring Lazio because they've already done it rather than final yes. because they've still got to play them at home. It's still going to be tough for them. Um, so I would just about say Lazio maybe um, would inch it in, in second place. Obviously, they've both got to beat Celtic. and That's know, the thing. And, and Lazio have Celtic at home, whereas Feyenoord have to go to Celtic. Yeah. So you would you would say that Lazio with Celtic at home, and then at Letty in the final game where maybe things are already sorted, they're probably holding the upper hand right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, they've got one point more and there's two games to go, so literally they have the upper hand. But yes, by the end of match day five, they may already be through. That's you know quite a, a big thing in their favour, obviously. It's very tough as a Celtic fan to uh, to to watch them in Europe under this guy. Um, he's the worst manager in Champions League history, and it continually shines through. I mean, they they could have beaten them at beaten Atleti at home, um, but it would have been undeserved because Atleti, for large parts, outplayed them. A draw was the fair result on the night, but they were beaten by Feyenoord, who never really had to break sweat. They lost at home. No, they're unfortunate, I thought, to lose at home to Lazio, but that was Lazio still trying to get themselves going in the season. Last night, they were just completely, completely outclassed. They weren't helped by the red card so early on, but the game was slipping away from them at that point anyway. Um, yeah, I think Atleti and, and Lazio is probably where the smart money is. Atleti at least are guaranteed a spot in the Europa League, but I'm very hopeful they go into the Champions League quarterfinal or knockout phases and, and we don't have to concern ourselves with them as a potential Europa League opponent. In Group F, another very, very tight group, only three points between first and fourth. Last night, Borussia Dortmund beat Newcastle 2-0, full Krug and Brand with the goals. And then AC Milan beat Paris Saint-Germain coming from behind after Milan Skriniar opener, to win 2-1 with goals from Rafael Leao and Ali Giroud. That leaves the group with Dortmund top, which we wouldn't have expected, seven points, PSG on six, Milan on five, and Newcastle on four. So we get PSG home to Newcastle next, Milan home to Dortmund, and then it's Dortmund home to PSG, Newcastle home to Milan. Uh, let's just start with the the English side of this, Carl. Do you think Newcastle can pull this off? Because we both thought they'd get out of this group. They've been really unlucky with injuries. Like, they're hammered with injuries at the moment to key players. And I feel like that's the, that's the biggest reason that they're in the position that they're in. Because, like, we saw them demolish PSG. But I don't know that I fancy them to get a result in Paris. I think they'll beat Milan at home. But I think they're going to end up third. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a ridiculously tight group. Um, I agree it's Newcastle's injuries which have mainly hampered them. I do think that they're a little bit short in you know, a, a sort of joining together attack area, not, not number nine necessarily because they have options, but just as an additional player to go from all energy midfield to actually scoring the goals in attack, I felt that they're a little bit short there all over. Maybe that's systemic rather than player type, but... <sighs> The other thing that we mentioned, we spoke about this more with Arsenal rather than Newcastle at the start of the season, is your first season in the Champions League is really hard. Just to get used to the different type, just to get used to the different demands, just to get used to the different quality. And it only takes like a little bit of a slip up. And I would say home to Dortmund was basically that. Uh, you know, even if you don't play well and get a nil-nil there, although you're only on five points instead, Dortmund are also only on five points. So it would have been six, five, five, five after match day four. So that's really the, the big mistake that Newcastle made there was allowing anybody at all to win at home, basically, at their home. Um, so it is really difficult for them from this point. I don't think that they'll go through. I don't honestly know that I think they'll finish third either because I think that even if they win that last game and go to seven points, I feel like Milan may do enough, maybe even beat Dortmund at home. Um, which suddenly puts pretty much everybody out of Newcastle's reach because they can't finish ahead of Dortmund if they only win one game because of the head-to-head. PSG, we expect, will win at least one of the last two. You know, if they beat Newcastle, that's nine points already. So I think Newcastle might miss out altogether. Yeah, it is It is looking very possible, to be fair. Um, it's a tight group. And yeah, I, I think you're right. That, that, that defeat at home to Dortmund was just such a killer for them. And it was... Completely unnecessary because the the thing that strikes me with with the tune in the Champions League, we've seen it because we've been a Champions League team for so many years. It's a different game in Europe than it is in the Premier League, and they're still trying to play their Premier League game, and they're a little bit naive to certain things, and. They also, Eddie Howe, this is obviously his first season managing in in the Champions League, his first season managing in Europe. He doesn't seem to have struck the right balance between, you know, keeping your squad fresh for Europe and the league. He's kind of burning the candle at both ends. And that's, it's not surprising. It happens to a lot of managers the first time in, the second time in, even the third time in. I think in, 10 years maybe he'd be more suited to managing in Europe once he's had a few goals at it. But for now, he he just seems, he seems like a rookie Champions League manager. He seems like someone who's doing this for the first time and trying to figure out some stuff. I think that's fair. I also think probably equally fair to point out that come the end of the season, let's say Newcastle do qualify for, you know, whatever European competition it is again, I think we've seen enough by now of Eddie Howe to suggest he will look back and realise change has to be made in Europe and make those changes. Like We've spoken about his difference in pragmatism between stints at Bournemouth and Newcastle, for example. I think he's shown he's got the capacity to alter what he does again, Agreed. even if it is just for, for European matches. Yeah, he just needs to go and spend a bit more time with Diego Simeone, and then he can he can learn <laughs> that side of things. Because that's, I mean, the, the, they're very Atleti-esque defensively. The shithousery and time-wasting is straight from the Simeone playbook. <laughs> Um, at least, he, at least he's got himself a good role model. In Group G, 
which was a fire signal. If you take more than five seconds on this group, I'm walking off the show. No, no, I'm just going to say the following. <laughs> City beat Young Boys 3-0. Leipzig beat Red Star 2-1. City and Leipzig are through. Red Star and Young Boys are out. The only thing that's interesting now is who ends up in the Europa League. Yeah. Um, Young Boys play Red Star in the next the next game uh, on the 28th of November. The winner of which will be in the Europa League and the loser of which will be going home. And that's all there is to really say about that group. Who um, would you prefer as a potential potential opponent? Young boys, because I, I the Red Star is a horrible place to go. I want to get rid of that memory, though, of the, the performance that we put in at Red Star. That is remains one of the worst performances I've ever seen from a Liverpool team. Um, there's, there's lads walking around with a Champions League winner's medal whose only real contribution where they played more than like 10 to 15 minutes was that game, and they should hand back their medals. Um, Group H is surprisingly competitive, because I thought it'd be a top two and a bottom two, and there'd be a big gulf. But Mm. Barcelona last night, beaten 1-0 by Shakhtar Donetsk, Porto beat Antwerp 2-0 on the same night. Barca have nine points. Porto have nine points. Shakhtar have six points. And Antwerp have no points. Now, you'd imagine that Barca will beat Antwerp on the final day, which will get them to 12. But Shakhtar will beat Antwerp next time up, which will put them on nine. Barca-Porto all of a sudden is quite interesting because I wouldn't put it beyond Shakhtar to go to Porto and pull off a bit of an upset. So it feels like Porto need a big result in this game against Barcelona. Did Aggie Barca do as well, to be fair? Yeah, but having having one more game left against Antwerp is guaranteed yeah. three points, really. Yeah, yeah, it is true. Um I mean, I think Porto have been pretty good, to be honest, all the way through, and only one nil against Barca in the in the first fixture, obviously. So, you know, the highest scorers in the group have only conceded three from the four games. I think they've they've been pretty good. I would still back Porto to get through from this point. Um, you know, even if it's going to Barcelona and being as ridiculously defensive as possible and getting a nil nil, uh, I think they're probably capable. To be honest, I think that they're a bit more overall better set up as a as a whole unit front and back. Barca are an odd team, Carl. Like obviously they they won La Liga last season and did so, you know, quite convincingly. They were aided and abetted by the fact that Real just continually shot themselves in the foot. Atleti weren't very good last season. They had a an exceptionally good defense. This year, that defence doesn't look as watertight, which is odd because they've actually added to it. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. 
we have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to AnfieldIndex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. They're dropping points in domestic games that, you know, you'd expect them to win. Like the Granada game, as an example. The Mallorca game, as another example. They struggled against Celta Vigo. They struggled against the bad Villarreal. They, they drew with Hitafe, who are not good either. They just, they seem to have dropped a, a bit of a substantial level which I'm I'm just a little bit surprised by because, like, I know they've had some injuries. I know Gavi's had injury issues. Pedri's had injury issues. But it's a stronger squad this year, in my view, than it was last year. Even though they didn't, you know, they didn't go out and do the big flashy signings the way they did in the summer of 2022, they still added a couple of decent players in, like, Ilkay Gundogan, uh, and Inigo Martinez. I'm just, I'm struggling with what's gone wrong for them. They, and they've obviously brought in Joe Felix and Joe Canseo as well. Joe Canseo might be the reason the defence has weakened a little bit. But they just don't seem to have that same purpose as they had last year. Uh, no, I, I just don't think that they're a very good team at the minute. That's the thing. Um, you know, there's still a lot of chop and change rotation. There's not really. I don't think absolute defensive partnerships which have been installed yet. There's still a lot of alteration there going on. Um, I think also, I don't want to say like it's a coaching thing because it's still quite early in his career. And like I said, there's been a lot of alteration anyway, but I just don't think that Barcelona really play very, very well at the moment whether that's because they need to be more direct or they need a bit better speed they're also relying on quite a lot of young players in attack um which you know can be exciting when they're all in form but is often will need someone a little bit more with leadership let's say um with a bit more clarity of match situations that they've had experience of in the past it's just still a little bit muddled and if i'm being brutally honest as well yeah, you got really good players in there like Gundogan and Gabi and the rest of them. But you've also got Ariel Romeo in there in a, quite an important role. And I don't mind yeah, Romeo. I think yeah. he's fine, but he's not. He's not Champions League caliber. I don't no, think he's not Barcelona there, so. fine though. Like he's he's Luton fine. He's <laughs> Sheffield United fine. You know, he'd be fine for Hitafe in yeah. mid table in La Liga. But I just think that there's like maybe four players sometimes more than that who are shall we say generally speaking Europa League caliber or Champions League caliber but not for a contender for the winning the Champions League like capable of playing in the Champions League like Ferran Torres is like good player I think he's fine for Champions League but I wouldn't ever see him playing for let's say a regular as Man City as he wasn't I wouldn't see him Mm. playing for Liverpool as a first choice he wouldn't be so some people not in great form some people obviously still getting themselves into the team and then a real reliance at times on whether it's Yamal or Balde or Lopez they're bringing in. Pedri and Gavi are great, but still really, really young, don't forget. So yeah. I just think that there's not quite 
the team there, and I don't really like the the speed of play that they play at too often either. So, if I look at this squad, uh, Marcus Alonso is definitely one of those that you're talking about. He's he's below the level that's acceptable. Ariel Romeo is another. Ferran Torres, I agree. Like if he was your fifth attacker, if he was in say the same role that Jota is for us, I think that's that's acceptable. But when he's starting as regularly as he does, that's a struggle. You're also then heavily relying on a Joao Felix, who, to be fair, has not been good for a few years. He's a very very talented player, but he hasn't been good for a few years. You're overly reliant on a couple of kids. Uh, Lamin Yamal and uh, Fermin Lopez. I mean, Fermin at least is 20, so he's not a child, but they are very, very reliant on young players. And we've seen with Pedri, who's missed most of this season so far, and Ansu Fati, that when Barca overplay these players as kids, they tend to hit a wall in their development. And Ansu's now out on loan at Brighton, obviously, whether he goes back to Barcelona and continues there or ends up being sold remains to be seen. It's just, I said this before to you, a couple, well, maybe a year and a half ago, given the financial situation they were in, for me, the better course of action for Barcelona for three to four years would have been trying to build a team while wiping off that debt. And instead, what they did was they entirely mortgaged their future in a manner which kind of insisted that they win now. And as opposed to just, you know, maybe just getting into the top four and having a run to the quarterfinals in the Champions League each year and maximizing your income while you know, shifting off the big heavy contracts. They sort of doubled down on the heavy contracts by bringing in the likes of Gundogan, the likes of Lewandowski, Joe Felix on loan, the big splash on Rafinha. Joe Canseo on loan is on significant wages. And I feel like, yeah, they won the league last year, but at what cost? Because they had to overplay young players like Pedri and Gavi again. And we saw with Pedri, he had that amazing debut season. Then he played in the Euros. Then he was sent to the Olympics in one of the most mindless decisions I've ever seen. He struggles the next season. Last season, then he's really good, but he's overplayed. And now he's barely able to get himself fit to play. Like For the long haul with Barca, that's a bit of a concern for me. Especially with the Euros at the end of the season, right? Because he's going to be there and they're going to be looking at him to play all the time again. And then it's Olympics again. Is Spain going to be there? I can't remember if they're on the, on the potential list right at this moment. But, you know, there's still potential for him to do another double. Um, so it's a problem for Barcelona over the long haul, let's be honest. They've, they've done this for quite a long time with quite mm. a lot of players. Um Alex Valdez, obviously, one that we'll also be looking at along the similar sorts of lines. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully, it's something that they do learn to mitigate a little. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you mentioned Balde. Like, Balde, Arejo, Gavi, Pedri, Ansu, Fermin Lopez, and 
uh, Lamine Yamal, who they knew was, they knew he was coming through. Like, that's the type of, and even Abde, I would have rather seen them build around those players and really put their faith in that youth and have kind of, again, I know we've just said he's not Barcelona caliber, but, you know, have your Marcus Alonso and your Ariel Romeo there to play because you're not actually trying to win the league. You're just trying to manage your way through and get yourself top four. Um, Pablo Torre, I would have liked to see him play more as well. Maybe Julian Areja, when they bought him, they could have played him instead of just loaning him out. I would have rather seen them throw themselves into that, clear off that debt, and then, you know, say the 25-26 season, you've got your finances in a reasonable place because you make stupid money every single year. Then you could start to go and add to that young core who by then will all be early to mid-20s developing or already there as world-class players. And I think they just would have been in a much healthier situation and not having mortgaged the future with those stupid economic levers that they were pulling as if they were going into fashion last year. Just all very strange. Just on their defence for a second, um, their starting defence is, Zhao can say right back, Balde at left back, and Kunde and Christensen seems to be the preferred pairing at centre-back. If you were a club looking for a centre-back and you had a significant amount of money to spend, would you be tempted to throw a decent offer in on Ronald Arejo? Yeah, depending on who else I had. I mean, as a recovery defender, really good. Ariel's great. But if you had, say, Ibu Kanate and Virgil van Dijk and you wanted a third (laughs) top-end centre-back because Ibu has injury problems and Virgil is ageing and you want to be able to have two top, top centre-backs playing all the time. Well, that's a very specific set of circumstances, Dave. Where on earth could that ever happen? (laughs) Um, Yes. Yes, I would. Especially, obviously, because he's played so much at right-back and we could do always with... Mm. alternative cover so you know even if it was him playing regularly and Kunde was the one you're talking about now I'd still be yes in this answer either of the two yeah yeah I agree um Darwin needs to make a phone call Hmm. come to Merseyside you'll be happier Jürgen will give you a hug they're they're so much better than Xavi hugs Xavi can't even hug you properly with his little arms they can't get around you you're a big unit come here Jürgen's got massive arms like a big, huge wingspan on him, engulfs you with a hug. Make life so much better for you. Uh, right, moving on then. Tonight in the Champions League, uh, we do have eight games in the other four groups. So quickly to go through them, Bayern play Galatasaray, Copenhagen play United in Group A. As things stand, United really need a result here because after this, they have Bayern at home. Galatasaray will go to Copenhagen. If United don't win tonight, Carl, I think they're going to be in the Europa League next season or this this season after Christmas. Uh, yeah, they'd be doing quite well to get into the Europa League. For if next they season, lose, if they lose, they might be out of everything. Yeah. Um, do you think United are going to win in Copenhagen? I don't. I genuinely don't. Like, Copenhagen completely outplayed them at Old Trafford. 
Now the thing yeah. is, United have been really spawny lately, and like if you look at their their results this season, there's been so much luck has gone in their favor, which is a remarkable thing given how bad they are. But like most of their wins have had a significant chunk of luck to them. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, they're every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. They have, including the most recent one, that Fulham never deserved to beat Fulham. Not not in a million years should they have won that game, especially the manner of the goal where Fulham had like, oh, I don't know, nine chances to clear that same passage of play and just decided not to. Um, Obviously, an unbelievable finish, and that's fine. You get that with really good players from time to time. But as a team, they didn't deserve to win that game. As a team, they didn't deserve to beat Copenhagen. And Copenhagen, arguably as a team, do not mm. deserve to only have one point from three games that they have played really well in. Yeah, um, you they know, were really draw... good against Bayern as well. Yeah, they were. Well, they were ahead against Bayern. They drew in Turkey. They were ahead against Bayern. Fine, you lose by the odd goal to Bayern Munich. I think most people probably accept that as a you know a matter of course, even if you play at your maximum. But then they should have taken something from Old Trafford as well. Yeah. So, I. I don't think that Copenhagen go into this match with too much fear, to be perfectly honest. And if they score first, I I, I think it could get a little bit ugly, to be honest. I wonder about the state of mind of, in terms of being a team of some of that Man United team. I really, really do. And if they're faced with, you know, what would be kind of embarrassment, what would be you know, very difficult for the future of, of European football for them this season and beyond, given their, their Premier League form. I think that that could be a bit of a meltdown, to be honest. If United score first, obviously, it's a completely different story. Yeah. And they have something to really fight for and suddenly put themselves on six points, which might put them second again if Bayern beat Galatasaray and so on. But I think so much hinges on that first goal tonight. Yeah, and having to go to Turkey and then play Bayern at home is a really tough tough end for United. Like they had the easier side of it first, having the two home games in the first three games. Now they've got two away games back to back, and and then Bayern at home. Like that's a really tough run. I don't think they're going to get out of this group. Um, in Group B, Arsenal take on Sevilla, PSV take on Lens. Uh, Arsenal are top with six points. Lens are second with five. This is not a good group. Lons are having a very mediocre season domestically. Sevilla are having a, a shit season domestically again. And PSV are having a great season domestically, but they've been really poor in the Champions League so far. I think Arsenal win tonight, and then they've got Lons at home Lons at home next week, so they'll probably just wrap it up there and be through. 
Yeah, I don't think there's too much to be surprised about this group. I mean, PSV, like you say, 11 wins from 11 domestically. Really, really good. Obviously, tie that in with Ajax having a stinker of a season makes it brilliant for them domestically. But I don't think that they do anything in Europe anyway. So as long as if they get through in second place, I think that that's basically the achievement of the group. Mm. So that everything basically for, for the French team has to be geared on this now because, like you say, domestically, again, not great. Um, drawing at home to PSV was maybe the thing they'll look back on and that might cost them in the end. But I, I think routine enough for Arsenal tonight, for sure. And beyond that, I don't think it matters. Yeah, yeah, agreed. It might well come down to that final game between Lons and Sevilla to see who, who goes through in second place um, because Lons away to PSV, then away to Arsenal, then home to Sevilla. Sevilla away to Arsenal, that's probably a defeat. Home to PSV that you'd expect them to win. So let's say Lons get a draw at P- or, uh, yeah, away to PSV. That'll be six points. Sevilla would have five going into that final game. It would just be a straight shootout between the two of them. Uh, Group C then. Uh, Napoli take on Union Berlin and Real Madrid face Braga. Berlin have been really really disappointing after making a decent start. Like they gave Real a really tough game. Then they went 2-0 up against Braga, and since then, it's just all gone against them. Um, Beaten 3-2 at home by Braga, beaten at home by Napoli. Now they go to Naples. I don't expect them to get anything from that game. I think it's Real and Napoli will get through out of this group, and I I think they'll get through with a game to spare. Yeah, I mean, Union Berlin's running form has been absolutely horrific. They won the first two Bundesliga matches and they've lost every single match in every single competition since then. Um, it's it's woeful run doesn't even begin to cover it, you know. Um, 12 defeats in a row? 12? I mean, yeah. I don't see them I don't see them getting anything from Napoli. Like you say, then they go to Bayer Leverkusen who are top of the table. So yeah. it doesn't look like it's getting any easier for them, let's put it that way. Um, this kind of looks like a group at the minute which is just going to be one of those Six wins, four wins, two wins, zero wins. Uh, yeah. Maybe Union turn something around against Braga for the second match and can sneak into the Europa. But obviously Braga only need a draw in that match at this point. And uh, pretty much done and dusted, isn't it? I hope they turn it around. Like you said, 12 defeats in a row in all competitions is really, really poor. But... I really like the manager and, and the job he's done there, taking them from being kind of a nothing second division team that you never really thought all of that much about, getting into the Bundesliga, then getting themselves into the Conference League in their first season, then getting into the Europa League in their second after the second season, and then getting themselves into the Champions League in year three. Like, it's been this amazing journey for them. And it kind of feels like it's all falling apart on them right now. But I really hope they don't make a rash decision and decide to sack the manager. But could you blame them if they did? I mean, realistically, they're losing tonight and they're losing against Leverkusen. That's 14 defeats in a row. And at some point... 
something will have to change. Either they get witch doctors in to hunt out the voodoo or maybe the manager has to go. But it would be such a shame given what he's accomplished there. Now, he'll walk into another job without question. But at the same time, it really would be horrible to see him fired given the way he's elevated this club. So, yeah, the one thing you would say about Union is obviously depends on the discussions, which we would assume are already happening behind the scenes, is after the Napoli and Bayer Leverkusen matches is the international break. And at that point, they may say, you know, this is the time to reset with the coach or may say it's time to reset with a new coach. Um, But if they keep him, obviously, you come back and you've got Augsburg and Braga, you've got to immediately think that they would have to hit the ground running there with a couple of decent results uh, before a, a lovely trip to Bayern Munich. Yeah, it's not ideal, is it? That's that's not not where you want to be going when you're desperate for a result. Uh, moving on then to Group D, Real Sociedad versus Benfica, Red Bull Salzburg versus Inter Milan, Real, uh, Real Sociedad and Inter are strolling through this group. Benfica have been appalling in this group thus far, and I've seen uh, our friend Marco Lopez bemoaning the fact that they're not performing well, but they're doing pretty well domestically. They're only three points off top, uh, sporting are unbeaten on top of the Portuguese league. But Benfica are performing well there. And then you look at their Champions League performances, beaten at home by Red Bull, lost away to Inter in a game that was quite close, but then they lost at home to Sociedad and they weren't very good on the day. Um, it's becoming an uphill task for them even just to get into the Europa League. Yeah. Um, I mean, Inter, I always find a team very, very difficult to predict what they're going to do domestically or in Europe. But generally speaking, you'd think that they should see it through um, in terms of Group D anyway. Um <clears throat> Like going away to Salzburg, I don't think is the easiest thing to do, but it's winnable. Real Sociedad showed that they were, you know, a comfortable level above when they played and they created quite a lot of chances in a 2 0 win. So Inter should overall have enough to get a result. And if they do, that sort of keeps them at bay, basically, and should see them into the top two after six. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it'll be. I think it'll be Real, Real Sociedad and Inter Milan that, that get through. And then it just it's just a matter of who goes into the Europa. Like you, I, I think Inter will beat Salzburg in Salzburg tonight. Then Salzburg go to um, to San Sebastian. I expect Real Sociedad to win that one. So we'll just come down really to can Benfica pick up a point either in San Sebastian or at home to Inter? And if they can, then maybe they go to Salzburg on the final day, win and go through. Um, But it looks like the top two will be the top two. Right. Very quickly, I want to touch on this before we move on to uh, a little bit on Toulouse. Um, Reports in the last couple of days that uh, Andre of Fluminense... Copa Libertadores winners at the weekend uh, is potentially Fulham bound. Now he had obviously been linked to Liverpool. Um, 
I was speaking to somebody who is a Fluminense fan and seems to have a fairly decent grasp on what what their players are going to do. He told me about Nino going to Nottingham Forest a couple of weeks ago. And he said to me that he believes Liverpool have actually moved on from Andre, that he was really a summer target. And when it didn't happen, their interest dropped off. And that that has allowed Fulham to be the ones to jump to the top of the queue. Now, I think it's a common sense move for us to move on because having signed Gravenberg at the end of the window, we don't need another eight. Andre, for us, is more of an eight than a six. He's He plays as a six in a lot of games for Fluminense because Denise doesn't care about defending. And he's happy to concede two goals and score three goals. But if you look at their domestic form, they're a mid-table team in Brazil. They beat a really bad Boca team in the Libertadores final. Um, there's only maybe three players from that Boca team that you'd really have any interest in. Did you did you watch the Libertadores final? Certainly did. What did you make of it? Um, mostly as expected, to be honest. Uh, I, I didn't think that Fluminense would sit off quite as much as they did second half and just give up complete control of the game, which was a bit weird. Mm. Um, but yeah, the rest of it, I think, was largely as expected. Flu comfortably had a better attack. Um, there was, you know, enough madness to, to, to sate the need to tune into any kind of South American football in any case. Um, some perfectly bizarre decisions for players to take, some ridiculous moments of aggression you know all the boxes were ticked basically it yeah. was pretty entertaining we got a main um, character referee yeah yeah exactly that and uh, yeah, he was the show ultimately the the slightly better team did win but i wasn't like blown away by any individual performer to be perfectly honest um andre i think is not someone i've watched 50 games of so i'm not gonna um base everything on what he is on this one game but it's pretty clear best traits are one ball carrying and progression mm-hmm. um, which like you say Gravenberch is exactly what we brought him there for and I think Gravenberch is a lot more agile on the turn than Andre is as well uh, and secondly probably I'm not going to say making tackles but certainly being around the place where tackles are made to, to pick up second balls and that kind of thing uh, and while that's fine and you know pretty useful and he's certainly not afraid to put himself in dangerous areas uh, defensively I think the thing Liverpool are lacking is the person to make the tackle in the first place and the person to really be the defensive protector so that the centre-backs haven't got to be the one stepping out. And I didn't necessarily see much of that from him. Yeah, I mean, he made one or two decent tackles in the game. There was plenty of hyperbole after the game from people that probably hadn't seen him before with announcements that he'd been sensational. Uh, Twatman Dave tweeted out stats on a game he definitely wasn't watching to announce that he'd been sensational. I I would say it was a 7 out of 10 performance, and that was about it. But there was plenty to not like about the performance defensively as well. Um, He's Look, he's he's basically, if we hadn't signed Alexis, then he would make sense as as like a Thiago successor. But we did sign Alexis. And we signed Gravenberg, and we've got... Dominic and Harvey and Curtis and Besetic and Bobby Clark. Like, we are loaded to the gills with number eights. And that's not even mentioning Thiago. We're loaded in that position. People will point at his 
ball winning numbers. Thiago has great ball winning numbers as well. Thiago's awful as a six. And Andre's not good there either. He's. I was surprised Denise didn't pick Alexander to play next to him, which is what he's done in this Libertadores uh, run to the final. And Alexander is a proper ball-winning number six. And that pairing is the primary reason they're much better in continental football than they have been domestically. Um, yeah, I... I I think Fulham's a good move for him. I think that's about the right level for him right now. It's a good proving ground. It's an opportunity to come to England, make his mark. And if he does well, he will get a move on. If they keep Joe Polina, that's a really nice pairing. I think the the fit between the two of them is excellent. Uh, obviously, Polina nearly joined Bayern, but then signed a new contract. You'd wonder what that means for the future. But I think that's the right move. I think it's the right move for us not to sign him because, like I say, we're loaded with number eights. We need a proper six. If it was you, who would you be looking at? Because for we've six. seen Chiumeni, yeah, for six. Because we've seen Chiumeni go off the board. We've seen Caicedo go off the board. But we've also seen the market for those players explode in terms of the cost. Caicedo for 115 million, Rice for 105. Neither of them are actual sixes, but the the concept is that you could play them as a six. Now, Arteta has quickly abandoned Rice as a six and put him as an eight where he's so much more comfortable. Caicedo's playing in a double pivot with Enzo, which is the right fit for him. The price on Cech de Cure apparently went up beyond what we were willing to spend in the summer, despite interest. Bubakar Kamara is a name that's done the rounds. We should have signed him a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago for free. Joao Polinho would cost a lot of money. I think 60 to 70 million Fulham were looking, and he's 28, pushing 29. And signed the new deal. And signed that new deal. So, like, there's, there's no, unless there's a buyout, there's been links to Bruno Gamerish in the past, but he's just signed a new deal. Now, it does have a buyout, but I'd imagine come summer, Newcastle will want $100 million for him. And he's not really a six either. He plays there, and he's very good there. What he has that Andre doesn't have is he's massive. He's yeah. six foot. He's built like a tank. Andre's five nine and not built like a tank. It's a position we need to address. Is there anybody you think that could be a January target? Do you think we go to summer with it? And, and who else might you look at other than, say, Dakure and Kamara? Um, I, I don't think it's one we'll get, certainly for a first team in January. Um, I think that there's a much bigger deal needs to be done if you're bringing in a first choice. The only time I think you get a, a January one is if you're picking up a, a young player who you think is going to be maybe 18 months before they're really considered for a starting role. Um, I'll be honest, I don't see like huge volumes of brilliant number sixes out there at the minute, like pure sixes. I think double pivots have come back in quite a lot around Europe at the minute. Um, give you an example of Ezekiel Palacios probably at Bayer Leverkusen, who I think is a really good ball winner and a really good protector, but he plays in the double pivot. Um, so whether you whether you think that he can become a six who is really aggressive and still is able to, you know, be a progressive passer higher up field. I think it's a little bit difficult to to definitely pick out. I mean, there's 
a few like obviously um uh general ball winners like say Zaire Emery at PSG for example uh really really good really really young but you're not going to get him at this price at this moment uh Yangel Herrera really good again as a ball winner but as an overall great player probably not um I'm, I'm probably see... a bit better box to box as well oh, yeah definitely quite explosive. Yeah, not, again not a sitter um not someone who's just going to be in that spot and just protect the defense I don't necessarily think we're going to find that right at the minute certainly not at the level to come in and be you know the same caliber as souls like short of someone like you many saying I've had enough uh, and just wanting to leave you know even if you look at people like Yusuf Fafanu who has spoken about quite a bit uh, as a potential target as a you know one of the potential next ones not necessarily having the the greatest of times in in terms of consistency mm. uh, not not 100% sure he's someone I would absolutely trust to control the midfield if everyone else is so so offensive minded and again most of the time plays a double pivot yeah so, and uh, likes to go box to box yeah yeah so i i just don't i don't think that there's an absolute candidate in the way that two years ago there was before before chumeni had left before uh Kamaving had left for example um i i, I just I'm not 100% sold on it. I think it'll have to be another case, which is not the end of the world, by the way. Let's just remind ourselves that Fabinho, when he came in, was a double pivot player. Mm. Um, you know, so this this isn't the the be all and end all that you can't find anyone just because they play in the two now. I just think that, you know, like Fabinho, he needed, what, three months of adaptation before he was a regular starter, probably then another couple of months before he was reaching really, really good form for us. So I just don't think that there's a plug and play at the moment. No, I, I'm inclined to agree um, because I'm um, an endless nerd. I, I do have kind of a working list that I'm keeping tabs on um, players that I think, you know, not necessarily walk in day one starter kind of players, but um, Matt Weifer of Feyenoord is, is an interesting one from a physical point of view, 6'3", well-built. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super-fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. Just has that Rodri, Jao Polina type of build and physicality, not, not of their level at this point, but he's only 23. Uh, might need a bit more time at Feyenoord, but I, I do think he's an interesting one. Uh, the guy that was up against Andre in the Libertadores final, Ezekiel Fernandez, 
I think he's really, really good. I very much enjoy watching him. The thing is, the move from South America to the Premier League is is a massive jump. I'd be more comfortable if you could bring him in as a player that you were going to... If we still had Fabinho and he was still serviceable, if you could bring in Fernandez and, you know, ease him in the way we have with Gravenberg, where he plays maybe the Europa League, the Cup, gets 15, 20 minutes in the league here and there, and then you can start to ramp that up. He he does interest me, and I, I always like a left-footed holding midfielder. Uh, Lucas Gornadot at Red Bull Salzburg. Consistency is the key with him. If he manages to become more consistent, he has the potential to be genuinely, I think, top class. Um, Arthur Vermeeren of... Antwerp, he's young, like he's only 18, but I do think the sky is the limit for him. I think he could be really special. Now, he's more of a Busquets type of six than a ball winner, but I, I think he's really, really good. Uh, Samuel Ricci of Torino, Ricci, Ricci, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. He's really good. The only thing is he's a bit more deep playmaker than defensive midfielder. But he is really, really good. And then the one that's really jumped out to me in the few games I've watched him play this season, and he impressed me last season, but this season I think he's taken it up a little bit, is Bubakar Traore of Wolves. Now, it's small sample size, and he played 18 games in the last 15 months because he was injured quite a bit last season. And then when he came back after a bad thigh problem, Wolves were being careful with him. But I do really like him. And I think he's the type you could develop into that proper high-end ball winner who won't take much out of the ball when he has it. He just gets it and he gives it to the other other lads who can play. But he's really interesting to me. So that's kind of where I land. If we could could get a Bubakar Kamara or we could get a Czech Dekure, I would prefer one of them because they're more ready-made, but they're not going to be available in January. Whereas I think one of these younger players could be available in January, but it would be sign them in January with the idea that their first choice come August, the next six months is them acclimatizing, fitting in, getting minutes, not necessarily being starters, but using them as more as, as spot players, as situational uh, starters. And would you say that it's likely again that you're looking at summer for a move like this for younger players for you know still got quite a lot of development for them probably going to be quite pricey for the most part. I don't mm. know that mid season's the one we'll go for for that. I think of that group, the two I could see moving in January would be Ezekiel Fernandez because obviously the South American yeah. season will be over, and I think it would be ideal for him because you could bring him in. He's off the back of a season, so now he's getting six months of just, well, five months to the end of the season or whatever, of just, you know, training games here and there. You're not overworking him. Then he gets the summer break, and then he should be good to go. Whereas I think if you buy him in the summer, the problem I have with buying from South America in the summer is they've already played half a season, and now you're asking them to come in and play a full season on top of it. So they're going to play 18 months of football or 15 months of football or whatever, 
in one season for them. Like that's that's a big ask. It's also the reason I, I I'm not keen on signing Andre. The guy's played fifty seven fifty three games thus far this season. They've got nine left in the league between the league and the World Club Cup. Um you could be talking about a guy coming in having played sixty two games and then you're like, oh well in you go, son. On you go and play. Let's run around a bit. And like it could be a year before he fully recovers from that type of load on top of him. So um Fernandez could be available in January. Actually, Fernandez, I think, will be available in January. Um, and Vermeeren, I think you could probably get him in January just because of who he plays for. I, I don't see Royal Antwerp being the type of club that will deny him a big move if he gets um, if he gets a good offer. Or, sorry, if they get a good offer. Now, at the moment, obviously, they're kind of same point as us in the season, but they're like they're sixth in the league. They're not winning the league this season. They're not going to compete to win the league this season. They're a mid-table team by and large. I think you could potentially nab him. But again, he's only 18, so he's he's not somebody you're going to have walk in and be the day one starter. Would you think that Endo has enough to be our placeholder until one of these are ready, I suppose, is the next question. Because we've only just signed him. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, he, he feels like he was signed as a placeholder. I I don't think he's quite good enough to start for Liverpool in Premier League games. But I think he's still a better option than using McAllister there. Because if I can move McAllister to the number eight position, I think the gap between McAllister and either Curtis or Gravenberg is significant enough of an upgrade that it makes up for any of the flow, like the lack of real quality with Endo. I think Dominic Endo and, and McAllister as a three, especially with Trent inverting giving you a four. I think that's just the best balance and the best way to get our best players in their best positions. Now, I don't think Trent in this inverted role is his best position, but that's what he's going to do. I mean, what I would actually do, Carl, is I'd play Curtis Jones at the six for now. Until we can sign someone, I would rather play Curtis there because he's bigger, he's stronger, he's more athletic, he covers ground a bit better. And I think he could adapt to that role pretty well. I would rather see Curtis play as the six and Alexis play as the eight. If if this is if we're not going to bring anybody in and Klopp isn't going to trust Endo, but I would start Endo for personally. That brings us nicely to Toulouse. It does. But last thing, maybe maybe the option in January is Calvin Phillips. And I know it's not everybody's choice, but I would actually be in favour of it. So, you know, that's just that. Uh, yeah, we played Toulouse in the Europa League on Thursday night. We obviously played them very recently and turned in pretty good performance. Uh, certainly we saw the best performance of Ryan Gravenberg's Liverpool career thus far. As we, well, let's be fair, we spanked them. Now, 
they had some moments in the game, but we looked very, very good in a 5-1 win. Um, Jota, Endo, Darwin, Gravenberg and Mo with their goals. A win in this one will see us on to 12 points and depending what happens between last and uh, St. Julio, we could well be through with a win here. If if not, a draw in the following game at home to last will put us through. But I think there's a fair chance that winning this game guarantees us top spot. Yeah, I don't expect anything other than that, to be perfectly honest. We should win. There's no reason to suspect anything other than we go on to win. They're not in a good way uh, in terms of their own recent form of performances. We've shown that we're quite a distance better than the other teams, not just in our group, but I think in most of the rest of the Europa League, to be honest. Um, and that's not, nothing to say about winning the competition because that comes down to who you play and how they play on the time on in the knockouts and that. But in terms of the group stage, I just don't see anything to be remotely concerned or worried or even that excited about, to be honest. It's just six games you have to get through. And if we do this one, we are through. And it's just about making sure we're top to avoid that stupid extra match. Yeah, exactly. Um, so since losing to us, they have been beaten 3-0 by Montpellier and then 2-1 this past weekend by La Harve. In the La Harve game, they were actually 1-0 up with seven minutes to go, conceded in the 93rd minute, and also the 83rd minute and then the 96th minute. Uh, like you say, they're not in a great place domestically. They're currently 14th. Um, Mets, who are 16th, are only one point behind them. So they're just outside the, the relegation playoff spot, which is not ideal. Not ideal at all. Better than Leon, who still haven't won this season and are uh, currently nailed to the bottom with four points. But it, you know, it, not much better. Um, yeah, look, this should be a very comfortable win. This shouldn't be a game that needs... It shouldn't need Mo. It shouldn't need Dominic. It shouldn't need Virgil and it shouldn't need Allison. Um, I don't even think it needs Trent. I, I would like to see Liverpool play a rotated team. Give the game the respect it deserves. So, like, not not just a bunch of kids, but I think our, our backup eleven type of job is is what you send out here. Yeah, um, just one other point to make on Toulouse and the sort of state of play that they're in. There was reports this week, last week, at the end of last week, I think it was that um, Redbird may have to sell as well um, because of a conflict of interest in UEFA, sort of telling them. Obviously, the, the crackdown that they have on uh, multiple ownerships and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of uncertainty around the club in general at the moment. Mm. Um, Liverpool should be absolutely fine to play a mostly second string team. I think the concession to that you might want to make is that obviously you just want to get the job done. Um, so maybe one or two of the, let's say, starters plays at least to start and maybe gets a half or 60 something like that um i think that there's probably enough anyway because of returning players uh if we assume luis diaz is still going to be part of the squad i haven't heard anything to the contrary of that could obviously change because of the the situation with him but 
if we suggest that he might still be involved, then this is maybe a game he starts. And if you assume Cody Gakpo is going to as well after uh, working his way back from injury, that's already two thirds of a really good attack, isn't it? Um, and then with people like Jones and Endo and Elliot and Simicast presumably will start. Matip and Kwanzaa have already played quite well together. It is a big rotated side, but it's mm. also still easily quality-wise very, very good. Much better than Toulouse can probably put together anyway. Yeah, I, I would like to see Diaz start in this game. Obviously, he's yeah. he's had the few games out and then came off the bench against Luton. Obviously, it, it, it should be his call whether or not he's sort of in the right mindset to play, but certainly came on against Luton and, and looked like he was properly locked in. Um, no Thiago, no Robbo, no Besetic. With Alexis suspended for the next league game, Carl, I think he might start. Yeah. So could we see, let's just say, Kelleher in goal, Gomez right back, Chambers left back, Matip and Kwanzaa in the middle. You don't think Simicas will play after being sub at the weekend? Oh, possibly. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, yeah, Costas then left back. So Gomez, Matip, Kwanzaa, Costas. Then in midfield, perhaps we go Gravenberg, Endo and Alexis. With Curtis kind of injured at the moment, so you don't want to risk him. And then maybe it's Harvey, Gakpo, and Diaz as a front three. Yeah, that would work for me. Um, like I say, I wouldn't be surprised if one of them started the main one. So maybe like Salah starts or something like that. But I do think Elliot deserves to play. I think he was pretty bright and creative off the bench. I think he's been all right as like a basically a 14th player this season. So I think he deserves to start in this competition at least. Um Alexis as a number eight would be quite nice to see, wouldn't it? Let him off the leash a little bit and just see if he's a creative fulcrum, so to speak, in this match, just how he gets on in general. Yeah, I mean, I I do think, like, when I look at the eight positions, they obviously do different things. I think Curtis and Alexis perform the same role, and I think Gravenberg and Dominic perform the same role which is why I haven't liked the Dominic Gravenberg minutes. I don't, I don't think they've done well together. I think both Dominic and Gravenberg have looked a lot better with Curtis as the other eight. So I'd like to see what Gravenberg and, and, and Alexis looks like as a pair of eights. Yeah. My hope is, my hope is we don't do the silly inverted fullback thing with Gomez because just play the lad as a right back. Stop trying to be a fucking galaxy brain. It doesn't work all the time with Trent. It's not going to work well with Gomez. He he was okay there against West Ham. But just stop confusing matters and take, making things more difficult than you need to. If you want to drop an extra body into midfield, pull Harvey back into midfield from the front three and let Diaz play closer to Gakpo. Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd really like to see Alexis. Given he's, he's suspended for the next league game, I, I don't see what the harm would be in starting him here and starting him as an eight. It wouldn't surprise me if he starts as the six. In which case, you really do have to question why we spent money on Endo. 
Yeah, I think the hope has to be that Endo starts six, plays mm. quite well and keeps his place for the weekend. And then you see him two games back to back and what can he do domestically as well? Um, I think for, for him, especially going into another international break, that would be the ideal scenario. Yeah, because then at least it gives us an option for the City game that maybe we start him against City in what might be a different shape, hopefully will be a different shape. Because if we do the the inverted nonsense against them, we will get absolutely taken apart. Um, Yeah, I kind of like the sound of that team. I I like the idea of Gravenberg, Endo and Alexis as as the midfield three. I think it's a good balance. I think you get a bit of everything in there. Ball winning, ball progression, ball recycling. You get obviously what Gravenberg can bring with it as a ball carrier. Um, and then having Harvey on the right and Diaz on the left. Now, it does mean a heavy reliance on Gakbo for goals, but maybe you just let Gravenberg have a bit more freedom to get into those kind of penalty box areas and he can combine and maybe maybe grab us a goal as well. Plus we Diaz, should... if he does start, is like in a four or five shots. He's, he, you know, starting yeah, that's season, true. He was the route for shooting. That is true. That is true. Um, either way, we should have enough. Like, we should have more than enough to beat them. They're not yeah. good. No. They're a mid-table to lower mid-table French team who finished mid-table last season as well and the season before. So we should have more than enough to overcome them. We saw that they they are dangerous on the counter and if we're not fully switched on, then, you know, they can bite us a little bit. But we also saw that we could take them apart at any moment. Whenever we wanted to, we could just open them up and we really should have scored more than five in that game. So... I, I'm very confident that we'll we'll get through this game comfortably. Agreed entirely. So, give me a prediction. Uh, I'm going to go for 3-1. Okay. I'm going to go for... Hmm. Do you know what? I'll be, I'll be adventurous and I'll go 4-1. And I do that to bring up my next and final topic for today, because I know you have to go now. But, Carl Matchett, I'd like you to answer the, the charges that have been brought against you, that the draw against Luton was entirely your fault, because as we've previously discussed, you are somewhat of a jinx, and you did predict a 4-1 victory for the Reds. <laughs> How do you plead? Um, absolutely not guilty in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think this is the first draw I've been present at for quite some time and these historical charges date back at least three seasons at this point uh, and have been well and truly proven to be nothing more than absolute bunkum. Um, I will admit I did expect a little bit more energy. I was expecting a little bit more quality. I was expecting a little bit more swatting aside and all of that I think just points to the fact that we need a reminder now and then that we are Mm. still a team in there a bit more transition than we were hoping for was going to be the case. And uh, sometimes we still need our eyes opened a little bit. So hopefully that has done the trick. But what's funny is if Mo had taken his chances and Darwin had taken his chances, we would have beaten them three or four one. Mm. And even though we would have played the exact same way, the, the outlook on the game would be totally different. So, you know, 
I think Lisa Marie, unfortunately, has brought the charges against you this time. And uh, unfortunately, Lisa Marie, we're going to have to dismiss those charges uh, with, 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 yeah, out of hand. Uh, but, but pending review uh, <laughs> down the line, if, if Mr. Matchett is uh, present at yet another shocking result for the Reds. Well, uh, Sheffield United and I'm at Crystal Palace, so we'll see. Well, Crystal Palace historically has been a tough place for us to go. So you can take no blame on that. But if we don't beat Sheffield United, I am going to make sure you're barred from being anywhere within a hundred yards of any Liverpool player at any time ever again in your life. Um, do you have anything to plug before we go? I think I best keep my mouth firmly shut. After that. <laughs> Follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Matchett. Make sure you read his work in the Independent, both on football and other other topics that he tends to write on, such as Formula E. Uh, follow Guy Drinkle at Guy Drinkle, and don't follow me because I'm just not very nice on Twitter. Uh, so we will see you next time. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.